Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. My guest today is Patrie Friedman, Executive Director of the Seasteading Institute. The Institute's mission is, quote, to establish permanent autonomous ocean communities to enable experimentation and innovation with diverse social, political, and legal systems. Patrie, welcome to EconTalk. Thanks, Russ. Uh, tell us about seasteading. It's a uh, play on the word homesteading, so uh, give us an idea of what it's about. Well, our idea is to basically build new city-states on the ocean. And even though it seems kind of crazy that building new countries on the ocean is the best way to achieve a, a freer society to bring kind of libertarian ideas into practical use, I've been thinking about this a lot for, for a number of years, and I think that it's actually, it's actually the most practical route. First, let's talk about the logistics of what a seastead would be like, where you're thinking about starting them and where they would eventually end up in terms of size and location. Sure. So they're, they're built sort of like uh, oil platforms. They're built on tall pillars to avoid the waves. And in terms of initial location, uh, right now we're thinking about something just outside U.S. territorial waters. So depending on what the lawyers say, that's something like 12 to 24 miles off the coast. And eventually we want them to be outside the EEZ of any state. So that, that's outside 200 nautical miles. What does EEZ stand for? That's the Exclusive Economic Zone, so the, the state has a, a limited set of rights, but the limited set includes some important things like economic activity, uh, harvesting, wind or wave power, things like that. And how many people would live on these early ones versus some of the later, later ones? And I want to get a, mag- a feeling for the magnitude of the size you're, you're hoping to create. Sure. So we're looking for the, the coastal one. We're looking at something like 50,000 square feet maybe. And it's not clear whether people, how many people would live on there full-time versus people commuting from a, a local metropolitan area. And the design for the first deep ocean one, we're looking at about 200 people and 250,000 square feet. And that's, that's a design for a, a hotel resort. So it's, with actually, it's 200 guests and 70 staff. And our hope is, is kind of like Las Vegas for that to, over time, evolve from being a resort where people go and visit for tourism to being a real city where people live full-time. And why would I want to go there? Well, it's my belief that seasteading will basically will produce governments that serve people much better, much more efficiently. That if you, if you look at government as an industry and say, why is it an industry that produces really crappy firms that serve its customers really badly, you can see that there's a couple of, of key qualities. One is an incredibly high barrier to entry. So in order to try out a new government, you basically have to win an election or a war or a revolution. I mean, it's, it's, it's terrible. I'd rather compete with Microsoft than, than try to start a new government on land. It, it's just insane. But on the ocean, since the ocean is 
essentially unclaimed, you can go start new countries on a much smaller scale. And then the other characteristic of government as an industry, which makes it really inefficient, is really high customer lock-in or high switching costs. I mean, to change governments, you have to leave your house, usually leave your job, leave your friends, move far away. It's it's really complicated. And part of the key is that we're going to build these things not on fixed towers, but they're going to be floating and they're going to be modular. So you could actually rearrange a city. So if City Hall passes an unpopular tax, they could wake up in the morning and look out on empty water because everyone moves five miles away. Well, that would be the sort of model of government as uh, harbor, where you just take your get in your boat and and you know go down downstream. Exactly, and and on the ocean, instead of just being a boat, it can actually be an entire building. If you look at the size of a cruise ship or a container ship, we're talking about things as 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 big as skyscrapers that just move around on a regular basis. So, for example, Georgia could be a thousand miles from Russia in a week if it wanted. It really, it really just it changes how things work in a fundamental way. Lowers the cost of secession. Just exactly. A and I think that this is, this is going to lead to just a, a really different market for government, one which is competitive, where you've got all kinds of small firms serving niche markets, trying different things, producing ideas that you and I would never think of right now, but will turn out to work well, just all the things that a well-functioning market does. So in what sense would this community of 200 people off the shore of California be its own government? So in the short term, so what we're looking for, the, the mission specifically says autonomy, not sovereignty, because sovereignty is so difficult and such a long way off. I mean, there's no, there's no formal legal way to get recognition as a country. It's more of a de facto thing. Um, so in the short term, what we'd be looking for is, is autonomy, and we'd be using the the, so so the, the system on the ocean is that you have to fly the flag of some existing country, and you're essentially under their protection and under their rules. And in, in practice, there are these countries that offer flags of convenience, they call them, where they, you just kind of register and they don't care what you do. And, and literally half of the world's tonnage is registered as flags of convenience. So it's not like some little fly-by-night operation. You know, half of ships do it. So is that what you have in mind? At the beginning, yeah, we'd fly a flag of convenience. And then eventually we'd want to negotiate with a country where we'd fly their flag and they'd explicitly support us. And now flagging is a competitive market. The government isn't because it has a local geographic monopoly. But with flagging, you can, no matter where your ship is in the world, it can be flying the flag of any country in the world. So you can be negotiating with every country in the world to see who is going to offer these flags. Now. I have to say, as uh, someone who had heard virtually nothing of this before, I find this idea kind of intriguing. But some of our listeners may have an, a reaction of, uh, well, come on, this is just ridiculous. This can't happen. So give us a little bit of reality as to why this might be feasible rather than just a pipe dream. Sure. Well, cruise ships, that's, that's, that's your two-word answer. So right now there are millions of people every year who go spend time on the ocean um, some estimates have suggested that the cost of living on a cruise ship is less than the cost of living in a nursing home and propose that people use cruise ships instead of nursing homes. And cr- cruise ships are, are built to travel. We'd be building these things to stay, so they'd go to less exciting places, but they'd also be a lot cheaper. 
So cruise ships demonstrate that all the basics of life, food, water, electricity, you, you can have in the ocean. Now, of course, many of them are not produced there. Many of them are imported. So just like any, any other place, you need to be doing things that benefit the rest of the world so you can trade. But it is, it is possible. But would this, would this um, seastead be self-sustaining if it needed to be? Definitely not. I mean, self-sustaining is another way of saying really poor. But like, how? I mean, we've got no comparative advantage in growing things. We have expensive fresh water and expensive area. So, so how do you see the economics of this getting off the ground? Well, I think there's, there's two areas where seasteads have a competitive advantage. One of them is regulation, basically anything that suffers from regulation. And the other is the ocean, things that specifically happen on the ocean. So in terms of getting off the ground, I think that one that was 12 to 24 miles off the coast of, of, of the U.S. could have a number of businesses that benefit from low regulation, such as medical tourism, um, possibly euthanasia, um, use of psychedelics for medical purposes. There's a trial right now of using MDMA for post-traumatic stress disorder. There's, there's a whole lot of things like that that are regulated so much in the U.S. that the, the money that you save by not being regulated by the U.S. is worth taking a trip 20 miles offshore. Well, I want to ask another question, but um, well, let, me, let me go to that question now. You're trying to do something more, though, than just create an interesting opportunity for medical experimentation. You've got a grander set of goals. Absolutely. So, in terms of liberty. So, uh, other than this just being a pleasant or perhaps not, depending on one's taste, a pleasant place to hang out. Uh, why is this going to be geopolitically important potentially down the road? Well, these, these small ones off the coast are just a way to get started, a way to make some money, prove the platform, and get economies of scale. But in the long term, I guess the way I think of it is the ocean tax versus the government tax. So the ocean tax is the extra cost of living in this harsh, corrosive, resource-poor environment. And the gov- but the government tax is, is pretty high, too. The government tax is the cost of regulation and taxes and you know, all the stuff that we deal with on land. So if we can get the ocean tax less than the government tax, then this can scale enormously. I mean, you take the idea to its extreme. If government really does work a lot better on the ocean because you can shuffle things and rearrange, then you get a world where Everybody moves to the ocean, and they just use the continents as farms and nature preserves. Well, let, let's uh, – I, I want to ask you about this harsh, corrosive environment. Uh, have you ever spent any extended time at sea? Not extended. I've spent some time. I, I could think it might be very pleasant or very unpleasant. I, I don't know what the human sensibility toward it is. If you literally – if you think about the 200 miles offshore model where in the middle of the ocean, you're essentially on a, an island, but it's an island – that's man-made, uh, that's a fairly high above the water to avoid storms and other issues related to that. Um, do you have any feel for what people would feel hanging out there for extended periods of time? I think it would be difficult at first. Um, that's one reason why I think the, the resort model is a good way to start, so that people aren't there for an extended period of time. And then over time, it's going to grow. You know, Once it's as big as a small town then it'll attract the people who are willing to see as few people as, as on a small town. And at, at each point, you just need to attract kind of 
the marginal people who where it's big enough to to appeal to them. And I think it'll also help to be that if you have businesses there where you're bringing in workers from the third world, I mean, that's something that happens on cruise ships right now. They they bring in a lot of workers from the third world. And the workers, you know, they're in this small place, they're working a lot, but they're making a lot of money compared to what they can make back home. Well, when I'm thinking of the human sensibility, I'm not so much thinking of small town life. I'm thinking more of what it must be, what it would be like to have at least to begin with, none of the features of the natural landscape other than the ocean. So you're you're looking out all day at this rather remarkable seascape. Sometimes it would be, I think, exhilarating. Other times it would be rather boring. Um, and you're sitting I – mean, I guess one way to think about it is to talk to people who worked on oil platforms for long periods of time. Right. I don't think they're very happy. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I, again, I'd compare it to Vegas. I mean, there's the desert, and there's some exciting rocks and canyons, which might be equivalent to the ocean waves, and there's any greenery or fountains that that, you, that are there you have to make yourself. But there is greenery and fountains. There is the fountains in front of the Bellagio because people like it enough that it's worth spending the money to have them. So we can have, we can have some of that. What are the economics, though, of creating those platforms? Have you looked, how far have you gotten into that? engineers working on conceptual designs right now, and uh, the very, very preliminary estimates are a cost of something like $500 a square foot. So it's comparable to expensive houses in the U.S., say, in the San Francisco Bay Area. But, but that's just the beginning. So, so most oil platforms and ships are built kind of by hand as one-offs because they're built to custom specifications. Right. So after we build the first one, if it works out and there's a market for more, we can build a factory to turn these out and get big cost savings. Yeah, although, <clears throat> again, I think you might want to – it might end up being somewhat customized because I think people are going to have very strong feelings about what they want it to look like and feel like, and they probably won't be like an oil platform. I mean, I think, you know, there's a, there's a safety issue to start with. Right. And after that, there's aesthetics. And I would think aesthetics would start to play a large role. I think a lot of people who would be find this idea appealing are people – some of them are going to be people with a lot of money who might want to be far away from those governments and are willing, going to be willing to pay something to have it look a certain way. Has there ever been a uh, – what's the stability of oil platforms? How have they done historically? They've done, they've done pretty well. So although, although a lot of money is spent on them, there still have, are a few disasters. Every, every few years, one gets hit by a storm and goes down. Usually, they're able to evacuate them beforehand. Uh, via helicopter. Um, one thing that we're looking at doing is being mobile in the sense of not being able to outrun a storm, but migrating in an annual pattern so that we avoid hurricane season. But yeah, in general, oil platforms have, have done, done pretty well. Every now and then, you know, one gets evacuated and, and knocked over by a storm, but not, not very often. Would that be bad for a country? Definitely. It, it would be awful. We want to make sure that doesn't happen. One, one way is through this migration. Uh, another possible way to get something big is to locate in the doldrums, the area by the equator. Right. doesn't have a lot of big waves. I've always wanted to be in the doldrums, more permanently, but, but I know what you mean. Um, let's talk about the alternatives. Uh, and you mentioned these on your website, but I'd like to just get your thoughts on them because you have some interesting things to say. For those of us who would like a world with more liberty – this is the uh, vote with your feet method, uh, which historically has had problems because 
of attacks and limited opportunities, the ocean might be sufficiently large to let us avoid that. But let's start with some of the alternative ways that people have proposed to create a world more liberty and why you've put your lot in with this more uh, uh, ambitious idea, perhaps more ambitious, but at least different. Sure, yeah. I mean, I, I would love for there to be a way to get more liberty without my having to leave California. And, and, and I would love for there to be a way that I found plausible to get more liberty without having to rebuild civilization on the oceans. I just, none of the ideas I've heard, I've, I, you know, have, have seemed sort of efficient in the sense that it would be a better system, that it would have more liberty, and stable in that it would last, and feasible in that the powers that be would let it happen. So one of those ideas that you talk about on the on your webpage is uh, the free state idea. So describe that and, and tell us why you've rejected that. Sure. So the, the free state project, uh, the brainchild of Jason Thorne, part of his PhD thesis at Yale, is the idea that libertarians may, may be a minority everywhere, but if we all got together in one state, that we would be large enough to influence the democratic process there. So he created a pledge where they try to get 20,000 people to all agree that once 20,000 people signed up, they'd all move to a state. And they picked New Hampshire, um, which already, you know, state motto is live free or die, already a relatively free state. It's a really good motto. <laughs> <clears throat> and, right, and we're going for the first half of that motto. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> definitely. And they've had, their sign-ups have been pretty slow. I think they're at maybe 9,000, and it's been going for, I don't know, five or six years. So they've, they've been slow to get those 20,000. Uh, some people have moved already. Uh, in, in my opinion, the greatest benefit of it is just by showing people that they can move to a place that has lower taxes and lower regulations and get an immediate benefit and freedom. But in practice, they don't seem to have been able to, to get the, the number of people necessary to be able to actually influence the state political process. And in general, they have the problem that you know, we live in the U.S. post-Civil War, so we live in a world with a very strong central government, which seems to have very strong feelings about how much freedom states are allowed to take. And most of the, in my opinion at least, most of the burdens and regulation, most of the problems with government in this country are at the federal level, if you look at tax burden, for example. So the, the higher the level, the more people that are involved, the worse government works. So the Free State Project is basically trying to address the part of government which is the least bad, namely at, the, at, at a small level, at the state level. So the effect that it can have on, on liberty, I think, is very limited because you're fixing what's the least broken and you still have the problem of the federal government. Yeah, I don't think the federal government would uh, let a libertarian-minded state secede. Uh, you could minimize, as you say, the state component that's non-free. But you'd be stuck with the the federal component, which is definitely not trivial. I I think the the bigger challenge with the free state problem, and I I'm going to pose it as a problem with seasteading as well, <clears throat> is that even if there were twenty thousand hardcore libertarians living in New Hampshire, I don't think their uh, their um, senators would be anarcho-capitalists. Just to pick an example, the the bulk of the people who live there still would find state involvement attractive. And do you worry about that in your uh, seasteads as well, that if, if you did get off the ground and you got to a 
you got some economies of scale. Uh, you got to a certain uh, city-like or even state-like magnitude in terms of population that uh, people would eventually uh, come to want collective action to be uh, coercive. And I think the – I don't like this idea, but, but you hear it all the time that the you know the state is a natural outgrowth of people's desires to act collectively and it's um has its own organic nature to it and it can't be avoided what do you think so i think that, that, that that's a great question and it and it really highlights why this idea is is so powerful because seasteading it doesn't depend on the goals of the people who participate in it 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 depends on changing the incentives of the system and this, right, libertarians should be sympathetic to this because this is part of the idea of libertarianism. It's, it's the system matters, the incentive matters, the structure matters, and people will respond differently given different incentives. So sure, some of the people who, who move out to these seasteads may have goals of state action, and that's, and that's fine, and they'll get governments that serve those goals because what we're doing is we're creating a competitive market, and that competitive market for government will, like any market, give people what they want. So it's fine with me if it gives people who want more state intervention what they want. I, I think that's great for them to have that, as long as it also gives me and the other libertarians what we want. And because of this this fluid nature of the ocean, I think it would be pretty hard for the people who want state intervention to force that on the people who don't. Because the people who don't can literally take their whole town and go leave. So I think that that this idea is, is, is really different and really powerful in a way that is not so vulnerable to these criticisms because it doesn't just depend on like, well, maybe if we get a set of people with the right ideas, things, things will change. We're actually changing the incentive. No, that's a very good point. I, I want to um, just emphasize that when I took uh, classes from George Stigler, he used to talk about the Ralph Nader theory of regulation. And the Ralph Nader theory of regulation is just regulation doesn't work. It's horrible. It, it's captured by special interest. That's all true, but that's because we have the wrong regulators. <clears throat> if we had the right regulators, they would serve the public interest. And, of course, Stigler's alternative view, which is the one you're enunciating and the one I share, is that, well, it's not the person. It's the incentives the person faces. So you know, when people are complaining that uh, you know, Alan Greenspan didn't regulate the um, uh, financial markets correctly, which is a bizarre claim in and of itself, but – the implications that somebody would act differently, and of course, whoever was in that job would have faced similar incentives and, and pr presumably would have performed in a similar way. But coming back to seasteading, it, it seems to me, and thought about it, being uh, having uh, insufficient imagination, but there would be uh, an opportunity for, as, as you implied in your last answer, socialist, um, communal, powerful state, powerfully co coercive. Uh, arrangements, at least in theory, uh, for those who feel that current government is not sufficiently statist and interventionist. That's right. Which um, I wonder how many of those we'd see. Yeah, and one of the things about this idea is it says, "Hey, let's let's generate more empirical data. Let's let's stop, you know, talking about what works and what doesn't work, and let's like group of people go out and try it. And as long as as long as the system is structured so that their failures only bring down them, you know what's the problem? And and I think we can all we can all learn from what happens. We'll see. Hey, some things just don't work at all. 
some things just work really well, and other everybody should incorporate those rules. And some things produce some some rules or institutions produce different societies that come down to a matter of taste. And by trying lots of different rule sets and lots of different institutions, we can learn what what's in what category. And as you mentioned earlier, there's a certain Hayekian emergent aspect to this. You're not, as you said, you don't know how it'll turn out or what people will ultimately choose, etc. But what do you foresee in the early days of this? Is there going to be an owner? Is there going to be someone in charge? Are you going to set up an early covenant, an early constitution? What do you have in mind practically to get this thing started? Right. So good question. So what we have in mind is something that initially is a private business where it's owned by a company that's making money off it, something like Spencer McCollum's uh, proprietary community idea. And What is that? Explain. Well, it's the idea that if you have control over a certain area and you, say, lease that to businesses or rent it to people, that you have an incentive to make that area as valuable as possible so that you can command the highest rents and the highest leases. So that even though people don't get a direct say in how things work, Still, the incentive is to serve them well for business reasons. And but that's just initially. Um, I think that over the, over the long term, people are going to want to have a say in how things work, and whether that's that they demand a constitution, that they elect people. You know, they're they're welcome to try. They're welcome to try whatever they want. It's going back to what you said about the the Hayekian order and about what Stigler said, it, it it kind of frustrates me how I feel that. This idea is built on these libertarian insights and these other alternatives that libertarians propose, like say Ron Paul. You know, let's let's just get a different guy in there. You know, not not that he has a chance because the country as a whole is not libertarian, but people kind of not thinking about you know how it's, the problem is not the policies. The problem is not that nobody's come up with efficient policies. People are constantly coming up with efficient policies, but we have a system that doesn't generate them and. How can we change the system so that it will generate better policies? And how can we do that in a way which is actually feasible, which is actually there's a path to get from here to there? And sustainable, too. Right. Do you, do you have any um, feeling that this kind of alternative might uh, – this is real fantasy territory here, I think, but let's see how far you'll go um, – might influence the countries that people are leaving? Oh, absolutely. If, if you look at the history of pirate radio, say, this was back, back in the 60s in, in Europe, there were these terrible government radio stations, not very many of them. They didn't play great music. And so these pirate radio stations sort of op, started operating on, on ships and platforms offshore. And the first thing the governments tried to do to stop them was to make it illegal to sell supplies to them. So eventually, after a while, this, I think only the Netherlands was selling supplies, and they had to all go get supplies there. But what killed pirate radio in the end was that the government got better radio stations. And so the extra cost of doing the pirate radio wasn't enough to make up for the, reg- in it, for the regulation. In a sense, you could say they made the government tax less than the ocean tax. And so it's, it's true. This, by, by adding more competition, governments might start operating better in order to, to hold on to people. Or they might start cracking down, and, and probably we'll see some of each from various governments. But to the extent to which governments on land get better because of this competition, that's a win. I mean, my goal is to bring more liberty to the world, not to bring more liberty to the world on the ocean. That's yeah, cool. no, I understand. <clears throat> Although, again, I'm kind of fascinated by the idea of what it would be like to live on the ocean. Um, aesthetically, I think it has its own unique positives and negatives that 
that would play into this. Um, sure thing. Do, do you really think it's conceivable, though, in terms of the economics and the viability of the of the technology that that thousands and thousands of people could live this way, as opposed to hundreds and hundreds, oh, or yeah. even millions? Absolutely. So, so I'll give you the lo- kind of long-term scaling. So for for the smaller ones, what we're doing is we're avoiding the waves by having tall pillars. But what you can do is, if you have something big enough, you can build a giant breakwater, something that, that stops the waves. And if you imagine a circular breakwater, then the length of the breakwater is the perimeter of a circle, but the area it protects is is the area of a circle. So you get a 1 over R economy of scale as it gets bigger. So as you build bigger and bigger breakwaters surrounding bigger and bigger cities, it gets cheaper and cheaper. And once you have a breakwater to stop the waves, building on basically building on top of the water is, is actually pretty cheap and pretty easy. Instead of having this big, solid, full concrete foundation, you have this big, solid, hollow concrete foundation, which provides your buoyancy. But it's actually fairly cheap. So I think that with these breakwaters in the long run, you can get the ocean tax to be really low. But just going back to your point about how it would be aesthetically, these breakwaters bring up a really cool idea, which is that one way to build them is you, that instead you could, of making... You could paint them. Yeah, right, they, you, they'd be like good. murals. You could invite all the kids to come out uh-huh. and, and paint them with different scenes. No, sorry. Go ahead. Wait, so what you can do is you can surf them. So, you know, one way to build a breakwater is just a big wall. But that, that takes a lot of, a lot of resources. It's, it's kind of not clever. So another thing you can do is you have kind of an inclined plane sort of simulating the shoreline rising up. And what it does is it makes the wavelength compress and the wave height go up and the waves eventually break. And when they break, they kind of dissipate all of their energy, you know, in themselves without having to hit your structure. But what this inclined plane essentially is, is a wave break. It's taking the ocean waves and making them break. So you could actually surf this wave break. You could have this enormous circular wave break in the middle of the ocean that's protecting your, your city and making waves that you can surf. That's very cool. Um, uh, the number of people excited about that, it's a small number of the surfing part, but it's not trivial. Um, and again, it's, intellectually, I find it kind of exciting, but are people going to take this seriously? Well, one of the, are they taking it seriously? Are you getting any encouragement? Some people are taking it seriously, and, and some people aren't. I mean, we've been, been interviewed by the BBC, and we've been on CNN and things like that. Um, and now Econ Talk. And now Econ Talk, sure. right. So that's, that's pretty exciting. <laughs> I, I would say that part of the, the, the benefits of this idea, as opposed to something like Ron Paul or converting people or you know, creating a huge social movement, is that we don't need to be taken seriously by very many people. All we need is to be taken seriously by a few people with money, and we can go build it and show that it works. That's, that's one reason I'm so excited about this. It's something that a small group of people can actually go do. You know, we don't have to convert millions of people. That's a great point. Uh, let's talk about the finances. Um, what's your financial footing? And you're talking about engineers. Do you, have, do you have people on staff? Is this just people who are doing this as a hobby? What, what's the current state of the project? It was just me and this guy, Wayne Gramlich, who wrote the original paper about kind of the engineering and how this would work. Um, I, I had just been researching kind of the whole new country movement as part of my personal desire to see more liberty <clears throat> in my life. But I just found it all kind of, well, honestly, kind of stupid and impractical. 
And, and Wayne's was the first paper that said, hey, here's how we could, a small group of people could kind of go step by step to make this happen. And so Wayne and I wrote a book, and I kept up a blog over the years while I worked my day job at Google. And it was just kind of, you know, a little project on the side, something I was very passionate about but didn't have the means to make happen. And then last year, somebody who read my blog and worked at Clarium Capital, which is a big hedge fund in San Francisco, um, kind of read my ideas and, and thought they were really good and hooked us up with Peter Thiel, who is the, the head of this hedge fund, founder of uh, and CEO of PayPal and first investor in Facebook. And he's a libertarian, very interested in the power of technology to change the world. And he gave us $500,000 in seed funding to start the Seed Setting Institute. Um, just in July, I quit my job at Google to work on this full-time. And we're going to kind of, we're, we're paying engineers, engineering consultants and doing basic research. And we're going to put together a business plan. Um, and early next year, or late this year, we're going to, pitch to Peter and, and other people uh, the idea of this 20 miles off the coast of, of California business. Have you ever run anything? Have I ever run anything? Nope, but we can bring in people who know more about the business aspect than I do. Do you care? Do like you want to run this or just want to live there? What, what's, your, what's your goal? I want to make sure that the long-term political vision happens. So... I'm happy if people who know more about business handle the business aspects as long as I'm making sure that the venture goes in, in the right direction. Do you worry, what are you worried about that, it, <clears throat> that might stop it from happening? Well, one thing is just the basic nature of the ocean. If the ocean tax gets to be is, – is, is just too expensive. Um, the, I guess the biggest worry and the biggest wild card is government – you know, at some point, government will notice and try to do something about it if, if we're effective. And the question is, does that happen, you know, early on? Does it happen at a point where there's seasteads all over the ocean, there's nothing they can do? How violent are they going to be willing to be to keep their monopoly? It's, it's kind of a, it's a big question, but I guess that's where you get to the live free or die. Yeah, what about piracy? We're not too worried about, about piracy. So there's piracy is in is two main types. One type is very small scale, just picking on, on small boaters. Um, over two thirds of pirate attacks don't even involve guns. And the other kind is, is sort of organized crime groups that will take an entire container ship full of cargo and go fence all the cargo. And there I think we just won't be as, as attractive a target. I mean these ships have talking about ten to twenty crew on a huge ship full of cargo that's all nicely boxed and ready to be sold, whereas seasteads will have, you know, the ratio of people to movable property will be very, very different. Yeah, I guess the ocean tax there works in your favor. People aren't going to want to come out to um, a seastead and steal the TVs right, or the right. laptops. They'd have to be doing something big, and, you know, I mean, we're, not, we're not planning to keep, you know, we're planning to keep our assets in the form of, you know, concrete and generators, not gold for them to steal. Although I guess part of your goal of having it be mobile is part of is a potential problem. Obviously, it's some kind of mobile uh, seastead that you could move around. That that would be a very valuable thing to to hijack. But kind of a hard thing to fence or to hide. That's true. Good point. 
Uh, what about defense generally? Is there any other issue that in the defense of provision of that service you think might be problematic for a Seastead? Definitely. And I'll, I'll give you two issues. One of them is just walking the line between having enough defense that it's expensive to attack us um, and while trying to not seem like an offensive threat to other countries. I mean, one thing that countries care, care a lot about is, is how much weapons technology you have. So in one sense, we want to be able to defend ourselves. In another sense, we don't want to look like a, a big, aggressive country. And the other problem is just kind of the collective nature of defense. I, I envision a, sort of a hierarchy of government where you have your, your, at the local platform level, you have rules that affect the local platform, and then they join, maybe join together in groups and have, have contracts about sharing power and Internet connections, other utilities, things like that. And, but at the highest level, you have worrying about collective defense. And I think that, that, that the fluid nature of, of these communities, the ability to leave, will lead to a hierarchy where power doesn't get centralized at that, at that top level, where the top level doesn't get to make zoning decisions about, you know, what kind of shape my unit is. But I think that it, it, is, it will be useful to have large organizations where many different seasteads join and contribute to collective defense, and there you get all the problems of defense as a public good, and you, know, you give them power in order to defend, but they use it to coerce and, and all of those things. Uh, you know, we talked earlier about skepticism. How about love? Are you getting any? Are there people who are really excited about this and or want to sign up right now for a, a condo on the uh, in the doldrums? Oh, absolutely. We, we get people who are just think it think it's a great idea. Uh, people who are saying, you know, just just build it and and I'll come. Sign me up. Uh, some of them are people who are, are libertarians who see this as as the most plausible option. Others have other political goals that understand that, that if, if this works, it'll provide governments to serve all kinds of different people, including them. And if someone's interested in, in staying abreast of what you're up to, is there a formal way to get involved other than just keeping an eye on your website, which we'll, of course, post at, at EconTalk? Uh, yeah, just keep an eye on the website. I mean, the, the blog has more frequent postings, but there's a press releases feed where we only post two every few months, and we'll post major things major things there. Um, there's some volunteer opportunities you can, you can find on the website. We'll be starting up a membership program uh, later this year where you can join the Institute. Cool. Let's go back uh, to logistics. Talk a little bit about some of the practical things you've thought through so far and, and how you think you're going to solve them. Just the basics, water, electricity, etc. Have you thought about it much and how far have you gotten? Yeah, in, in, in the <clears> book we that I wrote, which is available free online on the website, we, we hit all of these. For, for water, you can either use reverse osmosis or um, evaporation desalination technology. There, you know, for, if, for creating large amounts of water for, say, growing plants, they end up being pricey, but for amounts for showers and drinking and things like that, it, it's really not bad. Power, I think at the beginning, mainly diesel. Um, it's it, pretty cheap to burn diesel. We, we're going to want to have a little bit of solar and wind just to evaluate how they work in this environment, but I don't think they're yet cost competitive. In the long term, maybe wave power or OTEC, which is based on temperature differentials between the warm surface water and, and, and cool deep water. Um, but OTEC costs 
tens of millions to hundreds of millions, so it's going to be quite a while before before we can afford one. Most food will be imported, but we'll grow some fruits and vegetables in, in local greenhouses just for the freshness purposes. What about fish? Definitely. So so that's one of the the, the business ideas that I, I think is the most exciting uh, is, is aquaculture. So aquaculture is the fishing as, as ranching is the hunting. And, you know, as we saw in, or as farming is the gathering, and as we saw in the agricultural revolution, that there's a huge, huge efficiency gain when you go from gathering to farming. And there's this issue with fish where the, the supply of fish is dwindling worldwide because of the tragedy of the commons. People are just taking it out of the common pool. Um, but the demand for fish is going up because people are realizing how healthy fish is, that it's a great source of protein and, and omega-3 essential fatty acids. China and India are getting richer and calling for more fish. And the, the gap between them, I think, pretty much the only way to make it up, at least until we can, we can bioengineer fish and bats. But right now, the only way to make it up is through aquaculture. And most aquaculture right now, which I think is something like 20% of, of fish production already, most of it happens on, in coastal areas and inland areas, but those areas are environmentally sensitive and there's a lot of uses for them. There's a lot of uses for fresh water. There's not really room to expand there. So I think in the medium term, uh, deep ocean aquaculture is, is going to be a huge, huge industry. Yeah, there, there is a lot of it going on right now, not in deep water, but but coastal water for sure. And you're right, there's a lot of concern. I don't know if it's real or uh um, psychological about the idea of, of say, farming tuna, which uh, has been, I think, fairly successful. Uh, I would think there'd be a potential there for, again, some aesthetic return. If you think about um, a seastead as a giant aquarium where, you know, going – the tourism possibilities and the um, – uh, Aesthetic possibilities for for the residents could be quite large if there was a way to convert that pillar into some sort of viewing opportunity. I don't know yes, economically that might be challenging. Oh yeah, we can we can definitely have underwater viewpoints and and yeah, any anybody who 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 comes to a uh, a floating platform far offshore is going to expect good sushi, so we're going to have to provide that. <laughs> There's no getting around that. Yeah, no, that's clearly Sushiville might be you know the name of you know one of the early seasteads. Uh, certainly, is a marketing uh, strategy. If they don't get sushi, they're just going to leave. They're going to be, why did I come out here to the ocean? Yeah, you sushi. Right. Now, on the other hand, you might you might get those T-shirts. Um, you know, I came all the way out to Sushiville, and all I got was a piece of sushi. You're going to have to. You may have to deliver the fountains and all that, and that's going to be expensive. Um, well, it's a very cool idea. What do you? You know, again, let's just talk about the logistics of the first one. Uh, dream big and be optimistic, which you sound like you're an optimistic person. Um, when might the first one be open for uh, for business? The optimistic timeline is three to five years. Three to five years, not bad. And when's the first deep water one you think going to be possible? Five to ten years uh-huh. would be would be optimistic. Have I meant to ask you this before? Has there been a lot of evolution in oil platforms in terms of their technology and their aesthetics? Um, be, that would be a comfort for me as an optimist. The, the, I don't know about the, the aesthetics. There's certainly been some evolution in design. There's there's a lot of different varieties of design. Uh, what, one thing we're focused on is kind of taking them as as a as a source of information 
but our requirements are much different. We don't need to be fixed in one place. We don't need to take these heavy, heavy loads, and so we can we can save money by designing things a bit differently. But do they generate any of their power or water in ter- you know self sufficiently, or are they importing everything? So they import food, but yeah, I mean they they, they generate power and, and water locally. And what are they using for their water? Um, what technique do you know? I, I think they use reverse osmosis. Uh huh. So it's it's financially viable, at least in yeah. that setting. I mean, yeah, cru- cruise ships do it too. They do. Yeah, okay. but but oil platforms are 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 very expensive. We we need to be much cheaper than oil platforms. Sadly, they're a demonstration of of the engineering possibility that you can be out there withstanding the waves, but not of the financial viability. They're only financially viable because they're they're pumping they're pumping black gold. Have you thought about that as a strategy for making yourself viable? A little bit, yeah. Um, I think that it, it it sounds very challenging. We're going to be out in in deep water. I mean, one way to look at it is that you know any, any useful platform design, which which would be good for the kind of current oil industry, they they've probably already done. I mean, it's, so building floating platforms for oil and gas is like a hundred and twenty billion dollar a year industry. Yeah, they probably are pretty good at it too. They're probably pretty good at it. So we want to more. We want to leverage their skills and knowledge and designs to create something that meets our needs. And what are you telling people when when you talk to everyday people like our listeners, as opposed to say a funder or a, um, I don't know what other what other audience you might be in talking to, but trying to everyday people, what what excites people the most? So give me your best sales pitch for why. I should get excited about this idea and, and keep paying attention as opposed to just turning this podcast off at the end and saying, oh, that was interesting, it's crazy, but, you know, who knows? Maybe someday I'll hear of it again. Mm-hmm. Tell, give me a reason for why – give me your best uh, pep talk on why people who are listening should uh, take this seriously and be excited about it. The world needs a frontier, and the experience of America has been shaped by it being a frontier – the last big revolution in making a better government was democracy, and it, it was no accident that democracy happened here in the U.S. on the opening of a new frontier. And right now, the world has run out of frontiers, and I think a lot of the problems that we're seeing, a lot of people's dissatisfaction with their government, a lot of fighting, is because there's not a place where people can go, people with the pioneering spirit can go Try out new things, and then the whole world, whether you want to be one of those pioneers or, or not, can look at the new things. And if, like democracy, you're like, "Wow, that," you know, we thought it was crazy, but it, it turns out to be a pretty good way of living. Then everybody else can copy that. And not having such a frontier, not having a place to experiment, really impoverishes the whole world. And the ocean is the next frontier, and as Peter Thiel says, the ocean is the penultimate frontier. Eventually, it's going to be cost-effective to reach space. And the oceans have a lot of similarities to space, and there's a lot of reasons why they're a good kind of stepping stone along the way. And if, as a species, we're gonna we're gonna grow and expand and, and get off this rock, we have to go to space eventually. So it's it's good for the world now. It's good for our future. It's basically, it has to happen. My guest today has been Patry Friedman, executive director of the Sea Setting Institute. Thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Thanks for having me. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. 
The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.